So, Ellie, a second series of the Curiosity Conversation. We've been allowed to come back. Isn't that nice? Don't know. You'll have to ask our listener. Welcome to the Curiosity Conversation. Today we're speaking to Professor Michael Brown and Dr Bess Rhodes. Michael is really interested in political society of Scotland from around about 1250 to 1500 and on the relationships between the various communities of the British Isles during the same period. Bess Rhodes is particularly interested in late medieval and early modern Scottish history and she's part of the interdisciplinary Open Virtual Worlds team at the University of St Andrews which specialises in applying new technologies to the study of the past. Bess and Michael have created a new exhibition at the Wardlaw Museum entitled Cult Church City Medieval St Andrews, which brings together objects from all over the UK to explore St Andrews during the medieval period. Today's episode is called Cult Church City. Uh, So we're joined today by Michael Brown and Bess Rhodes. Hello. Hello, lovely to be here. Hello, hi Matt. So you are both medieval historians, but you have um, interests and specialisms in slightly different areas, but they're brought together in the history of St Andrews during this period. Um, Can you tell us a bit about what your interests are in medieval St Andrews? My interest is as a a historian of late medieval Scotland and looking at the um, church and the town as centres of a unique kind in in late medieval Scotland. So they're unlike the the king's centres at Edinburgh or at Stirling. Um, They're centres of ecclesiastical power and spirituality. And uh, they say very different things about Scotland from those royal centres. And that's why I've been drawn into studying them. Also, because I've spent quite a part, large part of my life living here and, you know, you're drawn to, to try and understand what it is that, that you know, you're inhabiting. I mean, the, the past is all around you in St Andrews, as I'm sure we're going to discuss. Um, I'm particularly interested in the church in St Andrews in the 15th and 16th centuries, um, including sort of period running up to the Reformation and the sort of transformative crisis which happened in 1559, 1560. Um, I've also got a fairly long-standing interest in property and landscape and buildings. So I've been researching what the nature of property holding was in the borough in the late Middle Ages. And I've also worked on some digital reconstructions of what St Andrews might have looked like at the end of the Middle Ages. Thanks so much both. I think it's really interesting that you know, all of these interests come together, don't they, in, in the history of this town, which is such a unique place. And like you both touched on, um, you know, what what ha- is unique now and was unique at the time. So I wonder, um, as a sort of starting point, kind of what, how does the modern day St Andrews relate to the medieval period, the town of the medieval period? And if someone who lived in St Andrews 500 years ago were transported here today, how much of it would they recognise? I think one of the interesting things about St Andrews is there are definitely things from the medieval townscape that shapes the community nowadays. The street plan in the town centre with the focus around North Street, Market Street and South Street, that is a fundamentally medieval street plan. And things like the St Andrews skyline with those towers sort of marking it, which you can see from a distance with St Salvatus and the remains of the cathedral, Holy Trinity. That's something that early travellers to St Andrews describe as a feature. Um, 
interestingly, there's actually an incident in the mid 16th century when John Knox is a prisoner. So he's Protestant in the mid 16th century. He's a prisoner in a French galley and they're in St. Andrew's Bay and he sees the Tower of Holy Trinity and apparently makes a promise himself that he'll come back there. So it's, it's really interesting. There's features of the landscape that are very much there then and that we still see. And things like S Sally's Chapel is, is something that's recognisable. But there are some really, really big differences. We've lost a lot of buildings. Um, there were m even more religious sites. Um, I also think that we've got to look at the town and the past as being um, a sort of a centre of industry, perhaps in some ways, more than it is today. Um, it's relatively small craft activities going on, but there's a lot of things being made in the borough. There's a lot of trade and things like the harbour was being pretty busy. I think they'd be pretty appalled uh, in some respects that the, the key buildings that they would associate with, with St Andrews were, were ruins. Um, that the cathedral, which would have been the pride of the, the city and the pride of, of Scotland in many ways, is is gone, you know, essentially as they would recognise it. And, you know, and I'm not sure they'd recover from that. They'd have to be carried off somewhere. Um, I don't know what they make of Market Street with, with Subway and um, Costa and things like that either. The, 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 the amazing availability of food everywhere, I suspect, <laughs> might have been pretty shocking. Um, so, yeah, I don't know, it's, you know, 500 years, it's a long time. Um, but, yeah, I think, I mean, Bess is right in a sense. I guess if they could look past the the, the kind of superstructure, they might see the bones of the, the town they'd recognise. But I imagine it, it, you know, street plan's one thing, but I'm not sure you'd see past all the, 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 the buildings and the shop fronts um, to, to really see a medieval borough. So, yeah, it's under there, I think. I think, I think it's actually interesting there's been quite a lot of change to the designs of the ordinary dwellings and shops in St Andrews. Although historically the pattern of having a building which is used as a residence and for trade relatively close to the street frontage, which we have in St Andrews now and they had in the past, that survived. But the actual design of the frontages has changed a lot. And what we see now is very shaped by the 18th and 19th centuries. And I think we'd have seen something that was sort of less classically influenced, less symmetrical, um, and with quite a lot of sort of timber structures built out into the street and staircases coming out into the street. We've got written records for that, um, which sort of got tidied away by the Georgians and Victorians. Um, and, and what about the the, the more, um, the stuff you can't see, what about things like lifestyle and um, worldview and way of thinking? How How much of a how much of a change would 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 this time traveller see if they, they they came back to the town today? That's that. I mean, enormous is the obvious answer. Um, society in the fifteenth and early sixteenth century is is structured in ways which, whilst I suppose in some ways they might seem familiar, are, are built around common values which are quite different to ours. So. Um, I'm thinking about, for example, the student body as essentially a, a kind of ecclesiastical body as, as belonging to the, the church as being part of the clergy rather than something which is incredibly secular if you go out on the town on a Thursday or Friday night. Um, the the organisation of the, the citizens too. Um, I suppose what we might pick up on is something which is about urban pride, is about the identification of themselves as being part of something that they're proud of 
and that they want to improve and celebrate in particular ways. And I, I know Bess knows much more about this than me, but the confraternities that exist in Holy Trinity, which are built around the, 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 the bequests of money or the grants of money to particular altars within that church, um, but are also kind of charitable and social organizations. So I suppose we might think of something like the Rotary or Probus or something like that that um, allows individual inhabitants of St. Andrews a way to express their, their piety and their devotion, but also to, to demonstrate a kind of collective concern for the souls and also the, the bodies of, of their fellow citizens. So there are kind of things that they do to, to show that they belong to a community, which in their, if you like, their broad outcomes, I suppose we'd identify with. But in the way they do them, they're particularly late medieval. The the goals and the values that they put at the forefront are probably not ones that we treat in the same way. I think it's really interesting that point about a sense of community and a sense of responsibility in some ways, because this is fundamentally a society which very definitely is not democratic, but it's also a society which does think that there is a communal endeavour and that people have a stake in society and particularly that sort of male property holders and male traders have a stake in the society and it should respect the wider interests, not just the interests of an individual. And I think if we're talking about things like charity, they definitely are caring for the poor. They're not caring for the poor, perhaps on the scale they sometimes should, but there is regular handouts from the church um, when you have religious change, Borough Council takes on quite a lot of responsibility. So, they know that they're less fortunate, that the, the poor, the sick, the widowed, the orphaned, who need to be taken care of. And in terms of charitable donations, like, I think it's complicated what we regard as charitable donation in the Middle Ages, because some of the money is going to sort of finance education in the university, some of it's going to build amazing buildings, um, some of it is going to fund religious services, some of it's going to care for the poor. So it's a really complicated mix of what you might regard as charity. But if we're talking about the giving of wealth, to um, institutions for broadly speaking good causes. The proportion of their income that they're committing to that is vastly greater than we typical in modern Western societies today. So it's a really interesting, on the one hand, you might see this as a deeply unequal society, but it's also a society which does have a sense of social responsibility of a sort there. That's really interesting. And I think picking up a little bit on, on both of those things, one of the things that struck me that you had written about in your book that is going to accompany the exhibition, which is a fantastic read, and I would encourage everybody, obviously, to pick up a copy from the Wardlaw Museum shop um, as, a, as a plug. But one of the things that really struck me in reading that is this, yeah, this, this sort of shared identity between the residents and the sort of sense that they knew what they wanted for their community. And I think there's a specific example around Holy Trinity Church. Bess, I don't know if you want to, to tell that story. One thing you can say about St Andrews is it's always had a strong sense of its own self-importance. Um, it's like genuinely, genuinely, they go on and on in the medieval sources about how sort of this, the cathedral is the chief and sort of mother church of the realm, that St Andrews is the chief and mother city of the realm. They go on about how Holy Trinity has to have the best services of any parish church in Scotland, um, that we have to have the best music. Um, and sort of after the Reformation, when they change their religion, they also go on a lot about how we are a perfect reformed Kirk and a perfect reformed community. They, they, they really think they're wonderful, which, of course, St. Andrews is wonderful, obviously. Um, but 
it's it's really interesting that they are aspiring to high standards and they regard themselves very much as the arbiter of how things should be. Um, I don't know whether sometimes that is because St Andrews is a slightly strange community. It is wealthy, but it isn't as big of an economic hitter as Edinburgh, Dundee, Perth, Aberdeen. Um, so it's sort of having to compete with these places that are, in all honesty, carving out a bigger share of the international trade, but is still saying we're an important place. Actually, do you not know, we're the head of the church in Scotland. We've got the saints, uh, the Apostle St Andrew's relics. Um, guys, really, really take note of us. So I, I think there's maybe a little bit of protesting too much. But I do think there is also an aspiration to make St Andrew's a centre of excellence. Yeah, I mean, I think we, we do look at um, medieval boroughs in particular primarily as economic units and they are that's what defines them is their their place as, as centers of trade and also manufacture um but i think they have a each of the the kind of major boroughs of scotland has a strong sense of its if you like symbolic and social importance within the kingdom um it's not a big kingdom and its towns aren't huge by uh, medieval standards, um, very small by the standards that we'd apply to them. But I think partly because of that, they ha they hit, they sort of punch above their weight in terms of the statements they make about themselves. Um, and St Andrew's links to the church and to the bishops and archbishops, I think, is what gives them not simply a kind of question of status, but also it gives them political heave as well. Um, the fact that, you know, all those other boroughs that Bess was mentioning, they're the king's boroughs. And therefore, they've got, you know, they've got no individual hotline to the king. Uh, St. Andrews is where the bishop's palace is. It's the centre of his power. And after the king in Scotland in the Middle Ages, the bishop and archbishop of St. Andrews is probably the richest and most important person in the kingdom. And if you can wheel him out as your patron, it gives you a lot of uh, advantages, as Cooper finds out to its to its cost in the the 14th and 15th centuries when it gets embroiled in a dispute, and at Parliament, you know, the bishop turns up and he supports his his citizens, he supports his town, um, and Cooper, you know, can't really get the king to to act in the same way. So I think it's 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 symbolic, but it's also political legal advantages that St Andrews has. So part of the the uniqueness of St Andrews comes from. The position of the church and the, and the power of the church does does that mean that St Andrews can't be taken as a microcosm of Scottish medieval society, or are there are there common factors? Can can we see commonalities between St Andrews and other towns in in the kingdom? I think St Andrews has always been a little bit odd. I think it's wonderful, <laughs> um, but I don't think it's been a typical Scottish town. I don't think it was then. I don't think it is now, but. I do think that there are features of life in St Andrews that would be typical urban features, both in Scotland and also in many cases across Western Europe. The idea of having big, significant churches like the Borough Church of Holy Trinity um, has equivalents in the big churches in Perth and Edinburgh and things like that. Um, the fact that you have got an urban council who deals with a lot of things, so the borough council, and that they have a place which they operate out of, the now demolished toll booth that used to stand in the middle of Market Street. Um, the fact that you have clearly delineated marketplaces in the town where things are sort of marked by a market cross and where you have sort of 
announcements made where you have official sort of stands for weights and measures, where punishment takes place. That sort of feature would be common to urban life in a lot of places. So there are definitely things that are similar, but there are also things that make St Andrews a very, very special community. Of course, the presence of the university makes St Andrews different from quite a few Scottish towns, though obviously there are one or two other competitors in Scotland. I mean, that, that that's really interesting. And I think I suppose the other point is broadly, if we're talking about how typical St Andrews is in Scottish society, a tiny minority of people live in boroughs. Uh, the vast majority of Scots in the Middle Ages are, are rural dwellers, and they come to boroughs because they're required to go there to trade. The, 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 the boroughs have a liberty, which is a kind of monopoly area in which people are, uh, are required by law to take their goods to the market in the borough to buy and sell. So most, most Scots in the lowlands will go to a borough to trade, um, but most will live outside. Um, and and it may not be very far from one, but their their existence will be a rural uh, existence based around kind of small firm tune or village um, in the the hinterland rather than in the borough itself. Um, so that it's not an alien place, it's not a distant place, but we've always got to think of these boroughs as in a kind of relationship with the rural lands. Uh, inland and in, in behind them, the uplands, as they're sometimes called. Um, and that, that's kind of the key to their place within Scotland, I think. St Andrews is quite interesting in that I think we might not recognise now how big a role it had as a law court, centre of sort of law in the late Middle Ages, because in the late Middle Ages, there's obviously like the King's justice, but the church is very, very important in deciding a lot of things. Um, and that deals with most of what we would now regard, I suppose, as family law, so disputes about sort of marriage and things like that. But it also deals with a huge range of property disputes, which relate very tangentially sometimes to church lands. And there's a huge, there's a suggestion that actually the church courts were probably busier than the royal courts. So, I mean, that's a bit debatable, but th there's a suggestion that, that might be the case. And St Andrews is massively important for um, the church courts. Um, it's got various levels with sort of the most important being um, the court of the official principal, um, which is sort of the archbishop's main court. And that we know that for, it, that's actually satirised almost for being so important. We've got a reference um, in the Satire of the Three Estates of this sort of um, satirical play of the 16th century um, to a pauper going to St Andrews for to seek law. And this idea was clearly around in the wide community of Fife. Um, we've got references, um, there's a later 16th century reference after the Reformation when the legal structures in St Andrews have fallen apart. A woman comes to St Andrews seeking justice and she says that St Andrews was ever a place of justice. Um, so it's, it's really interesting that that is something that St Andrews is offering to Fife. Um, there are other, there, there is there is a sort of sheriff court in Cooper and things, but actually northeast Fife for a sort of relatively rural area is really surprisingly well supplied with legal provision um, for somewhere outside of Edinburgh. I think that's really interesting going back to the landscape thing about what people would recognise. Because the thing that, that strikes me about, one of the things that strikes me about St Andrews are the survival of some of those demarcating sort of entryways between jurisdictions. So we look at things like the Westport um, at the end of, of South Street or the Pens at the opposite end of South Street. 
And, you know, we see sort of medieval or 16th century survivals. But for, for someone in the town at that time, those are, are boundaries between different jurisdictions. And the consciousness of um, not simply the difference between canon and civil law, but between different civil courts, different courts of the, the bishop, of the burgesses, of the, the prior in the cathedral, they all had their own legal territories and activities involving different individuals or in different places would have gone before different courts. So, you know, burgesses, one of their protections was that they could answer cases brought against them in the burgess court, even if they were committed outside the borough. So they, they could go back home and, and face charges, if you like, and it was a real protection for them. So, we, you know, we live in a world where you have essentially one structure of, of, of jurisdiction. Um, in, the, in the 15th century, you know, there were multiple uh, courts, each barony, uh, each jurisdiction. And in St Andrews, there are kind of three sets of civil courts and the borough court all existing alongside each other. And people would know, you know, where they were entitled to, to put their cases. Um, so it's much more, some ways, much more legalistic society because you had to do justice yourself. You had to seek justice yourself. Um, and therefore, you had to have a certain knowledge of the law. And, you know, in wills and things, we find ordinary people, they've got their legal books. They've got their copy of the Scottish laws because they need them. Uh, it's a practical tool. You know, we, we tend to think of this as a lawless society. It's much more heavily imbued with law in your personal life than, than our society is because we rely on the state to do all that. Uh, and they, they had to rely on themselves to a large degree. That's that's absolutely fascinating. And so did they did they ever have were there any disputes between these different jurisdictions about who 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 has the right to to what's the word rule? That's maybe not the right word, but to, to judge on a particular issue. Did that ever happen? Absolutely. Um, it's interesting. Um, one thing I would say is the presence of the archbishops, quite often they're a sort of mediating factor when there does turn out to be disputes between different jurisdictions. Um, one of the ones which actually really interestingly is quite often controversial is the university, which in the 15th century gets ambitions which are perhaps um, a little too extensive. Um, and it actually tries to sort of interfere in some case in the town and exert sort of justice over people who aren't members of the university. And that's very strongly pushed back against by the borough council, who actually write a letter to the um, city officials in Cologne saying, is this normal for a university to do that? Right, no, we thought it wasn't, great. Um, and in the end, um, uh, Bishop Kennedy kind of sorts the whole mess out and says, no, there are limits to what the university can do. Don't try and take over the town. That's, yeah, that's that's, that's quite comical, actually. It's, it's really, it's, it's fascinating to hear that there were so many different, yeah, competing influences within the town and that, that you know, people who lived in the town would be well aware of that. I think one of the things that maybe we haven't touched on as much is that presumably also the fact that St Andrews was the, the home of the cult of St Andrew also impacted the way that, that people uh, you know lived in, and worked in St Andrew in St Andrews. I wonder if you could maybe expand on that a little bit. Yeah, it, I mean, it clearly is a defining characteristic of the, the, the city. It's where it gets its name from. Um, it's that association with the, the relics of Andrew that are housed in the cathedral. Um, and, you know, we don't know when the pull of that starts, but certainly by the early 12th century, 
um, when you're seeing the, the the cathedral under construction, you're already talking about a, a hostel that's designated for for pilgrims, a hospital as they call it, um, to house poor pilgrims when they come there as a charitable institution. So clearly. There's a big enough flow of people to St. Andrews to make that seem essential to, to provide for them. And pilgrimage is really becoming um, a way in which particularly lay people can express their devotion and gain spiritual benefits from undertaking this uh, journey. Um, it's a way of cleansing your soul of sin um, so that should you die, you'll progress more speedily into heaven. Um, spending less time in purgatory before you go. So there's a kind of spiritual benefit to this. And if you're too poor to endow a religious house uh, or, or endow masses to be said for your soul, it's a way of personally, if you like, committing yourself to that redemption of sin. Um, so it's something which has a fundamental part in, in the, the way people view if you like, their, their, their moral health and their future after death. And therefore, it draws a lot of people into to pilgrimages all across you know, Europe, all across Christian Europe. Um, and St. Andrews clearly has that um, status as the principal pilgrimage site in Scotland, probably northern Britain um, more widely. And, and though the evidence is quite patchy, draws people from further afield as, as well. And the wealth of the pilgrim trade is clearly funding the construction of the cathedral and indeed supporting the kind of growth of the, the borough as well and, and certainly determines, as people have argued, the, the layout of the streets so that they're, they're wide. The north and south streets are directing people towards the cathedral, whereas the marketplace is, if you like, sheltered in the middle, um, not interfered with by the passage of pilgrims. And it's, it's a convincing argument. I mean, nobody ever actually says that's why the streets are laid out that way. But it, it makes a lot of sense if you walk around St. Andrews to, to, to see that arrangement and, and think about the flow of people. And you can see how important it is when it stops, which is in the later 14th century. And, and you, you get a lot of people saying, well, you know, where have the pilgrims gone? Why aren't they coming anymore? Um, and the, the coincidence of the founding of the university in the early 15th century, almost as an alternative, maybe, um, is, is seems seems convenient. It, it's a way of of altering the role of St Andrews, and I think it's a, it, it's almost the success of St Andrews on the back of the pilgrimage that 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 ends the flow. You know, people want to go on pilgrimage to places which are clearly spiritual, that are clearly about that as their principal task. And as best as saying, St Andrews is a place of law. St Andrews is a place of government. Um, and, and maybe that's why the pilgrims start going to, to other sites, um, smaller churches, in places like Whithorn in Galloway or, or Tain up in the north of Scotland, um, where they can they can find churches which is, which are smaller and simpler and dedicated much more clearly to the cult. Um, the, the, the impression I'm getting is that St Andrews is a is a bustling place. It's a wealthy place. It's got this huge cathedral. It's got uh, lots of churches, and that seems to to go against this this maybe now a bit old fashioned idea of, of of the Middle Ages being the the Dark Ages. And certainly, we can see um, the exhibition that you've been working on at the at the Wardlaw Museum um, has some. Uh, amazing artifacts in some some beautiful bits of stonework, um, an incredible uh, bishop's gown, a chaucerable. Um, 
how inaccurate or accurate, maybe that's a leading question, is this description of, of the Dark Ages? And, and how flourishing was the kind of art scene at this time? I, I, mean, I feel very strongly that the visual splendour of medieval St Andrews was quite extraordinary. Um, that you've got these churches which we know had stained glass, um, which had painted statues, um, and the furnishings are remarkable. Um, and I think that's something if for people who've grown up in countries which were profoundly influenced by the Protestant Reformation, I think we quite often go to medieval churches and see what's effectively shells, very beautiful, very wonderful shells, which still serve religious purpose, but they've had a huge amount of decoration stripped out. And one of the amazing things about St Andrews is the records we have describing some things that they used to be. And we, if we take St Salvator's Chapel, for example, which is still a lovely, lovely building, um, but we know that it had altar coverings made from cloth of gold and from sort of different colours of silk damask, that we had crosses um, covered in gold and pearls, that we had a great silver statue of Christ the Saviour. And there's, there's records showing that similar things were present in places like Holy Trinity, obviously in the cathedral. And that has been lost and it was a way in which St Andrews was part of an international artistic culture. We know that things like there were alabaster statues imported from um, Flanders to St Andrews. We know that the marble um, for the altar at the former chapel that there was on the St Mary's College site on South Street, that was imported from abroad as well. So they've actually got some pretty first-rate stuff um, and I think it's so important that we recognise that this was a culture which in at least some aspects had this very lavish, very splendid um, collection of belongings. I think that's, it just paints such a, a wonderful picture doesn't it and it, it is difficult to visualise these things sometimes even even if you are reading you know the, the descriptions of them sometimes just seeing things like that are incredible and I think that's kind of where your work on the reconstructions of medieval St Andrews are really important because it does actually help people who will visit the exhibition people online to to be able to actually visualise what 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 these things look like and it would just be interesting to hear from you how how you actually go about creating these visualizations and how, maybe how accurate you think you think they are as a representation of of St Andrews at the time? Oh, I'm delighted to. Um, so I've been lucky enough to um, work with the Open Virtual Worlds team and um, also associated company Smart History um, on quite a few representations of um, St Andrews, how, how it might have appeared in the past, um, most recently on, on the representation of Market Street in the mid 16th century. Um, so what, I'll, I'll talk a bit about sort of the process. So basically there's a research process, which I've been involved in, but also other scholars like over the years, Richard Fawcett, and there's been a couple of great um, postgraduates, um, Perrin Rastoff Nyman, Chelsea Reutzker, and a lot of other scholars have contributed to researching what the places might have been like and then there's a modelling process um, and my colleague Sarah Kennedy's skills are incredibly important here. Um, so basically digitally modelling using similar sort of software that sort of people might use for um, arch architecture and things like that. Um, 
And then you get a sort of virtual model that's put into um, a, a gaming engine. And from that, we can get all sorts of different forms of media coming out of it. So there's a sort of whole process involving a lot of technical knowledge and expertise, as well as a historical research process. The historical research process is quite fun for St Andrews. Um, we are really lucky in having an amazing early visual record of St Andrews, which is the Getty map. And I've been doing a lot of work with this. Um, I've one of the things we've been doing is trying to sort of test it against the physical evidence and the written documentation of St Andrews. And interestingly, although Geddy does have some distortion, he shows St Andrews more of a grid and it really should be more of a sort of trapezoid. But there's so much detail on Geddy that's actually reinforced in the written record. So there's an example, um, really small one, but um, there's a demolished building on the corner of Abbey Street, um, which is shown on Geddy as having a sort of round tower on the corner, sort of with spiral staircase inside. And that, that's a, a type of structure known as turnpike. And that's there in the written records for that property in the 16th century. So there's like lots of details on Geddy, which we can use. So we've drawn on Getty an awful lot. We've also drawn on the literally thousands of property records that the University Special Collections hold. And that means that actually, I think the property boundaries are quite good in the reconstructions. Um, some of the features are specific features that we can say, yes, this house had that. There's also quite a lot which is guesswork there. Um, I also think there's things whereby maybe we haven't shown enough of the splendour and detailing on some of the religious buildings. And that has partly been the complexity of modelling that is unbelievably labour intensive. So I think it's sometimes slightly simplified. And maybe in a way that's a shame because I've said these these were lavishly, lavishly decorated buildings. It uh, uh, sounds fascinating. I, I've really enjoyed exploring some of these uh, some of these reconstructions and visitors to the exhibition called Church City Medieval St Andrews can explore them as well at the Wardlaw Museum until the 3rd of July. But um, if people can't make it to St Andrews to see this fantastic exhibition, how can they find out more? Where can they go? Well, not to, to plug my own product, um, but Bess and I have both got articles in a collection that uh, I put together with um, Professor Katie Stevenson of St Andrews um, called St Andrews um, Church Cult City, um, which was published in 2017. And it draws together the work of scholars who are looking at a whole range of topics to do with um, the town in the Middle Ages from the cult of St Andrew looking at the physical layout of the, the town and how it relates to medieval buildings, an analysis of the archaeological evidence, but also studies on the, um, the bishops and their role within St Andrews and in Eastern Fife, uh, the foundation of the university and its early history, the, the property that the church holds in the borough and the people of the town. I think some of the interesting information is about what we can say about the inhabitants of medieval St Andrews, who they are and what kind of activities they get up to. So that, that's my little plug for the volume. Well worth it. Available now in paperback too. You can look at some of the reconstructions as well online um, at the Open Virtual Worlds team website. Um, and of course, um, Michael and I have also um, been working with the museum um, on a little booklet of primary sources relating to medieval St Andrews, so giving some of the voices of the people who actually lived here and how they described their lives.
Um, I also have to recommend special collections, the university special collections, library special collections website, um, which has a huge number of sort of pictures of sort of 19th century St Andrews, but which also has done scans um, of some of the medieval documents. Um, and amongst other things, you can look at things like the original book of the Hammerman's Guild. So that's the, the Metal Workers Guild and things. And it's really wonderful to see those sort of those actual original texts. Well, thank you both so much for coming to speak to us today about all things Cult Church City. And yeah, it's been a pleasure working with you on the exhibition and can't wait to, to get it open for the public to see. Um, yeah, thank you so much. Thank, thank you, you very much. Well, Matt, that was such an interesting conversation. I feel like I've really built a picture up in my mind's eye of what St Andrews was like in the Middle Ages. I quite fancy a trip there. Well, you don't need to build up a picture because you can see the reconstructions that have been created. That's absolutely true. Uh, Cult Church City Medieval St Andrews is open at the Wardlaw Museum until the 3rd of July. So please come along and uh, see Medieval St Andrews for yourself. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please remember to rate, review and subscribe on your favourite podcast platform. It helps others to find it. And if you join us next month, we'll have another fascinating conversation waiting for you. The Curiosity Conversation is brought to you by the Museums of the University of St Andrews. <laughs>